Ježiša do vládnej budovy. Bolo včas ráno. Oni však nevošli do vládnej budovy, aby sa nepoškvrnili a aby mohli jesť veľkomočného baranka. Pilát teda vyšiel von k ním a opýtal sa, akú žalobu vynašate proti tomuto človeku. Odpovedali mu, keby nebol zločincom, nevydávali by sme ti ho. Pilát im odpovedal, vezmite si ho vy a súďte podľa svojho zákona. Židia mu na to, my nemáme právo nikoho usmrtiť. Aby sa naplnilo Ježišovo slovo, ktorým naznačil, akou smrťou má zomrieť. I krátom aj môžem umášať sa kritériom a inávať Ježiš. A sa kaj aj sinabi, i kaupaga ang hari ng mga hudyo, sumagat si Ježiš. Sinasabi mo baga ito sa iyong sarili o sinasabi sa iyo ng mga iba tungkol sa akin. Si Pilato ay sumagot, Ako bagay hudyo, ang iyong sariling bansa at ang mga pangulong saserdote ang sa iyo'y nagdala sa akin. Ano ang ginawa mo? Jesus contestó, Mi reino no es un reino terrenal, si no fueran mis seguidores lucharían para impedir que yo sea entregado a los líderes judíos. Pero mi reino no es de este mundo. Pilato le dijo, ¿Entonces eres un rey? Tú dices que soy un rey, contestó Jesús. En realidad yo nací y vine al mundo para dar testimonio de la verdad. Todos los que aman la verdad reconocen que lo que digo es cierto. ¿Qué es la verdad? preguntó Pilato. Entonces salió de nuevo a donde estaba el pueblo y dijo, Este hombre no es culpable de ningún delito, pero ustedes tienen la costumbre de pedirme cada año que ponga en libertad a un preso durante la Pascua. ¿Quieren que deje en libertad a ese rey de los judíos? Pero ellos contestaron a gritos, no, a ese no, a ese hombre no, queremos a Barrabás. Barrabás era un insurgente. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Trinity. Uh, we're so glad that you're here today on this Palm Sunday. And if you've been with us over the last uh, several weeks, you know that we're in a series called Legacy, where we are looking at various characters from the Bible and examining how God used them in redemptive ways to accomplish his will. Uh, many of those characters were flawed. Many of them were sinful. Uh, some of them did extraordinary things. And we can learn from those life lessons and apply them to our lives today so that we can leave a lasting legacy that will advance God's kingdom. And that's what we're trying to do. And so what I'd like for us to do today is go back in time, about 2,000 years, to the first Palm Sunday. And we're going to be looking at the life of Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate. And um, Pontius Pilate was, was actually appointed to be the prefect of Judea and Samaria by the emperor Tiberius. And the typical uh, amount of time that a prefect would last in this day and age was about one to three years. But Pilate, because he was savvy and shrewd as a politician and he knew how to hang on to his political power, was able to hold on to his position for 10 years, which was very significant. Pontius Pilate um, lived in Caesarea, which is by the sea. 
And Caesarea was a beautiful place to live. It was the same place that Herod the Great once lived. And I have a picture, if you like, of the sea uh, where he lived. In fact, if you look at that picture right there, that square section in the back, right along the water, was actually the foundation for the pool that was his palace. That's all that's left today, except you might see a little bit of uh, tile work uh, in the ground near the rocks in the front. I kind of picture uh, uh, Pontius Pilate swimming laps in the morning with his wife Claudia uh, just before breakfast. It was a beautiful place to live. But he only lived there for most of the the year. There was a season where he had to head to Jerusalem, and that was during the holy days, during Palm Sunday and the Passover. And so he would make his way to Jerusalem during that season because he needed to be there in order to put down any type of rebellious activity that might take place. You see, uh, Pontius Pilate had a number of responsibilities as prefect. He would supervise uh, construction projects. He would oversee the collection of taxes, which was important for keeping the Roman government uh, flush and able to do the things that they needed to do. But his most important responsibility was to keep law and order. And he did that extremely well. In fact, historians will tell us that What Pontius Pilate was not able to accomplish uh, through persuasion, he accomplished through brute force. He was was a a powerful and mighty and very harsh leader, especially if someone was to cross him. And so when he made his way to Jerusalem, he didn't just travel there on his own. He conducted a parade of sorts. It was like a military parade parade with chariots and horses and cavalry and lots of foot soldiers. You can kind of imagine the clanking of the armor. Uh, you might imagine the poles with the, with the eagles mounted on the top as, as a sign of his power and uh, the Roman government. And you can imagine the drums and the banners as Pilate is making his way into Jerusalem from the west. And as he was doing this, you can bet that nobody was yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna. No, he was doing this to instill fear, to make sure that anybody that might even have an inkling of causing trouble or starting an uprising during this holiday season would know that they would be put down very quickly. You see, Jews would travel from all around for this holy season. Jerusalem would swell in population from about 40,000 to about 200,000, all within about a week or so. So there were masses of people. And of course, Pilate was concerned that if there was an uprising, that could look bad on him, and he wasn't going about to allow that to happen. Now, At the same time, there was another procession taking place from the east. And this was a procession that many of us as Christians know much more about. There was a Jewish rabbi by the name of Jesus 
from Nazareth who was making his way into Jerusalem as well. And he was riding on a donkey. And he was traveling with his disciples. And all these people were gathering around in exuberant celebration, singing and dancing and waving palm branches and yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, because they knew about Jesus. They had seen him do miracles. They were hoping that he might be the Messiah that they'd long awaited. And when Jesus got on that donkey and started making his way to Jerusalem, he was making a statement. He was letting the people know his identity, his true identity. In fact, he was even fulfilling a prophecy that many of the Jews would have known about from the time that they were very young from having read the scriptures, from Zechariah 9.9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy. He's allowing the people know to know that he is, in fact, a king. And the crowds are going crazy because what they're hoping for is a physical liberation from the tyranny of Rome. That's what they think is going to happen. But of course, Jesus is ushering in an entirely different kind of kingdom. Have you ever ridden on a donkey before? I want to tell you, I have ridden on a donkey. And it is very hard to ride on a donkey and exude a sense of power and might at the same time. You see, the donkey that I was riding on was about the same size as me. And I remember there was one point when my little donkey was making his way up an embankment. And I was wondering if I was going to have to hop off this donkey and carry the donkey up that section. I felt ridiculous riding on this donkey. And yet Jesus chooses to ride on a donkey... And he's making a point. You see, two leaders entering Jerusalem at the same time, Pontius Pilate and Jesus of Nazareth, and yet they couldn't be more different from one another. They couldn't be more different from one another. Jesus is intentionally setting himself apart from the ways of the world. He's intentionally setting himself apart from the the systems that Rome had put in place. In fact, what he's trying to tell us is this. True authority comes through humility and not through power. True authority comes through humility and not power. The authority that Jesus was modeling wasn't about power and control, He didn't teach techniques. What he did is instilled character within people. He wanted them to learn how to lead by being a servant. And that's where authority was found, through humility. In fact, Jesus taught, when you're struck, when you're struck, turn the other cheek. 
He said, when you're sued, give even more. When you're told to march, double the distance. When someone begs or needs money from you, give generously without interest and without any concern for their position or status in society. These are counterintuitive suggestions that Jesus is espousing through his teachings. But over and over, he does this, and he's reminding us that true authority comes through humility. And as representatives of Christ, we need to be examples of that humility in the way that we live out our lives. We can't continue to promote the, the pomp and all of the, the grandeur that this society says we need to exude in order to be accepted by the people around us. The self-aggrandizement that is everywhere in the media and in our celebrity kind of mindset. The world idolizes that stuff, and yet it's contrary to everything that Jesus is teaching. Do you want to know when you've arrived as a follower of Christ? You have arrived as a follower of Christ when the only thing that you care about is what Jesus thinks of you. The only thing you care about is what Jesus thinks of you. In every action, in every deed, in every aspiration, what does Jesus think of you in this moment? You'll know you've arrived if when you're doing things, your, your mind goes to Jesus and you can be confident that he's pleased with the actions that you're taking. After Jesus entered Jerusalem, he spent the next few days teaching the kingdom of God he did a number of things. He, he washed the disciples' feet. He cleansed the temple. He predicted Peter's denial. He was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was condemned by the Sanhedrin in a trumped-up trial. And Caiaphas, the high priest, who was the ruling priest at the time in that area, wanted to kill Jesus. He was so intent on having Jesus killed. But in order to do that, he had to get permission from who? Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate, as the prefect, was the only one who had authority to determine whether or not a person could be executed. He was the only one. And so Caiaphas and the priests and the Sadducees gathered up Jesus and they took him after a mock trial that took place throughout the night, they took Jesus to the palace of Pilate. And they refused to enter that palace because they didn't want to become ceremonially unclean. Because Pilate was a pagan. And it was the Passover feast. And they, if they became ceremonially unclean, they wouldn't be able to partake of the Passover feast. And so they waited outside. And Pilate had to come outside in order to speak with them. Do you see the hypocrisy in this? The irony in this? You see, the, the, the leaders, these, these religious leaders are willing to lie and make up stories about Jesus. Falsely accuse him of certain things. They're willing to have their, his blood on their hands. 
but they're still concerned about becoming ceremonially unclean by entering the home of of Pontius Pilate. Isn't that crazy? This should remind us that the Holy Spirit needs to guide us. We need to be looking for insight and discernment from the Holy Spirit all the time. We need to ask the Holy Spirit if the things that we're doing, if our ambitions are in line with him. We need to make sure that we're not compromising our principles or our integrity. One of David's most popular prayers and most profound prayers is found in Psalm 139. And he says this, he says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We should pray this prayer every day. Don't we want to be led into the way everlasting? I know I certainly, I certainly do. So Pilate asked the Sanhedrin, what accusation are you bringing against this man? What accusation are you bringing? And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not happy about the fact that Pilate was questioning them. They were really hoping that this would be a rubber, rubber stamp of approval and that, that Pilate, because he had a disdain for Jews, could care less that he would just say, do whatever you want with him. But Pilate knows that these religious leaders had tried Jesus in a mock trial in the middle of the night. And it may be that because he has disdain for Caiaphas, the high priest, and the religious leaders, he's going to press them a little bit on this. I doubt that it had anything to do at first for his love for the Lord or his care about what happened to Jesus. And so... The high priest, being concerned that Jesus might slip through his fingers, says this. He says, if he were not a criminal, we wouldn't have brought him over and handed him to you. So he doesn't answer the question. He's offering a, a vague excuse as to why he brought Jesus there, but he doesn't, he doesn't say anything about what Jesus has done. And Pilate, to this, says, Why don't you judge him by your laws? As if to say, why are you bothering me with this? Why don't you handle this? And the religious leaders said, but we have no right to execute anyone. And Pilate knew at that point that these guys were up to no good. He knew that they had been part of this mock trial And so he insists on having a real trial, a legitimate trial. And so the religious leaders say, we found this man perverting our nation, forbidding to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he is Christ, the king, as if they were loyal Roman citizens themselves. What they were saying was clearly untrue. We know what Jesus was up to. And we know that, that these are false accusations. And it's, it's probably true that Pilate saw through that as well. 
Pilate knew that these religious leaders were trying Jesus and attempting to have him assassinated because they were envious of him. They were envious of him. Which leads me to another point. Envy is a powerful motivator for sin. Envy is a powerful motivator for sin. The Sanhedrin wanted Jesus dead, not because he was a criminal or a threat to Rome, but because he was a threat to them. He was a threat to them. The Gospels tell us that Jesus was winning the hearts of the people to himself, and he was pointing them to the Father. And because of that, people were turning away from the religious leaders of the day. And of course, they were envious about that. Secondly, Jesus was really hard on the the religious leaders because he knew that they were actually making it more difficult for people to come and know God. And so he had some really, uh, really blunt things to say to the religious leaders. And of course, they weren't receiving that constructive criticism very well. When people are filled with envy, uh, they become blind to everything else, especially the long-term effects of their obsessions. Have you ever thought about the last time you were envious about someone or something? And what you were willing to do in order to deal with those feelings? 1 Peter 2.1 says, Therefore, rid yourself of all kinds of malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Most of you are probably thinking, well, I'm, I'm not really an envious person. You know, I'm, I can't even think of a time when I was really envious. But do you know what the root of envy is? Fear. And I'll tell you something. I don't know anybody that isn't fearful about something. Everybody's fearful about something. Maybe you're fearful that you're not lovable enough. Maybe you're fearful that you might be expendable or that people don't respect you or that you're not important or that you're not valued or even relevant. When those tapes start going through your mind, the byproduct of that is you start looking around at people around you and you start seeing people as potential threats and you become envious. And then you start to take action to protect yourself. And that's what these religious leaders are doing. But do you want to know what the antidote to fear is? Love. And scripture says that perfect love casts out all fear. It's talking about God's love for you. Do you know that there's nothing that you could do that could make God love you any more than he already does? He absolutely loves you. He loves you, he loves you, he loves you. He died for you, he's crazy about you. So Pilate is surprised by these accusations, so he asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate has interrogated a lot of people in his day. And when he's looking at Jesus, he doesn't see someone that looks like a king. Secondly, he does not see someone that looks like a troublemaker. 
So there's a part of him that's starting to feel a little bit of compassion for this man. He feels like he needs to step in and maybe do something on his defense. Jesus answers, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Pilate says, so you are a king then. So you are a king. And Jesus said, you said that I am a king. Which is, in a sense, like saying this. You said it. So he's agreeing. He's validating Pilate's assumption. Yes, in fact, I am a king. But then Jesus goes on to say that my kingdom is a kingdom of truth. And Pilate is intrigued by this. He says, what is truth? What is truth? As if to suggest that building a kingdom on truth would be a complete waste of time. A complete waste of time. Because we know that Pilate believes that truth is relative. That it's unimportant. That it doesn't matter. What he's concerned about is satisfying fleshly desires, worldly gains, and holding on to the power and control that he has. But what is truth? How is truth going to help you in that? It's a tragedy when we fail to recognize what truth is. But it's even more of a tragedy when we recognize what truth is, but then we fail to heed that truth. And many of us fall into that from time to time. I know I do. So Pilate recognizes this guy is not a threat. And if he is a king, he's he's a king of, you know, in his head. You know, truth. What's that going to do? And so he knows that that this is not a problem for him. And so he goes back out to the religious leaders. And he says, I don't find any basis for the charges against this man. And the Sanhedrin become even more fearful that he's going to acquit him. And so they come up with more charges. And they say, well, he's been stirring up the people. He's been stirring up the people and teaching all sorts of things. He's been telling people, you know, that they, that they shouldn't acknowledge Caesar as, as our emperor. Again, lies, lies, lies. But this is concerning to Pontius Pilate, because remember, he needs to keep the peace. And so if Jesus was, in fact, stirring up, the people, he would need to know about that. And so he asked Jesus, he said, aren't you going to say anything? Because Jesus remained silent during this time. Aren't you going to say anything to these accusations that these religious leaders are making against you? It's almost as if Pilate is saying, give me something that I can work with. Give me something so that I can defend you. You see, Pilate wants to acquit Jesus. He knows that he's innocent, but he's afraid of the Sanhedrin. He's afraid of them, and he's in this challenging position. If he acquits, the Sanhedrin will go to the Roman authorities above Pilate and say, this prefect that you put in position is, is doing nothing to prevent sedition against the emperor. 
And Pilate knows that if that word got back to the emperor, he could be ousted. And that's the last thing that he wants. But at the same time, he doesn't really want to convict a man that he knows is innocent. So he's caught between this rock and a hard spot. The religious leaders are desperate to get rid of Jesus. And Pilate is desperate to keep the peace. How often do we see this in politics today? Both parties doing everything they can to get what they want with no consideration of what's right. It's not new. And what it is is a representation of our sin nature. You know, we all fall into this. We're all sinful. Now, by now, things are getting more challenging because crowds are starting to form. And they're wanting to see how this is going to play out. And the crowds are getting riled up by the religious leaders. Pilate has to decide the fate of Jesus. And yet he's found no fault in him. Just about this time, Claudia, Pilate's wife, sends a note to Pilate. And he tell, or she tells him, don't have anything to do with this just man. I've been having these dreams about this man. I know he's a just man. Do not involve yourself with this man. Pilate reads the note. He thinks about it for a moment and he dismisses it. Because he feels as though he has no choice. He has to deal with this. So he dismisses the, the wise counsel of his wife. When we are in a desperate situation, whatever that situation might be, that is the time that we need to listen to the wise counsel of people that know us and care for us and that we know have exhibited wisdom in the past. Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of the fool seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. The wise listen to advice. Have you ever regretted a decision that you made? And afterward, you started thinking about it, and you realized a lot of people told me not to do that. A lot of people that I knew had my best interest at heart, people that consistently demonstrated wisdom, spoke into my life, and I dismissed it over and over again because I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And now I'm, I'm reaping the consequences of that. And guys, if you are married, listen to your wives. Listen to your wives. There's something about the nature of a husband and wife relationship where God strategically places our wives in our lives to speak truth and wisdom into our lives. And I'll tell you over and over again, my wife has seen things that I have not seen. Sometimes I listen to her. Sometimes I don't, but I'll tell you the times that I didn't, most of the time I regretted it. And here's the thing. Your wife will only speak truth into your life if you affirm her and if you don't shut her down when she brings things to you. 
and only if you create a safe environment for her to speak into your life. You need to foster that, husbands. And it's not always easy to do because a lot of times the advice comes when you're feeling desperate. And when you're feeling desperate, our natural tendency is to say, I've got this, right? I know what I need to do here. You make your decisions, and you really don't want feedback from anybody else. Pilate doesn't want to give Jesus up. He doesn't want to crucify him. And so he reminds the crowd that it is customary to release a prisoner during the Passover season. And he knows that in his custody, he has a prisoner by the name of Barabbas who is a bad, bad man. He is a murderer. Everybody knows that this guy is absolutely no good. And Pilate thinks, hey, this could be my way out of this. If I offer up Barabbas against Jesus, who are they going to take? I mean, they're not going to condemn Jesus over Barabbas. And so when he offers up the two of them, and the crowd starts chanting, Jesus, or give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus, Pilate is really surprised. He's really surprised. And so he takes Jesus back inside, and he's kind of in desperation asking Jesus, what do I do? He says, don't you realize that I have the power to either free you or crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. You would have no power over me if it were not given from above. And the crowd becomes increasingly agitated, and Pilate crumbles. He crumbles. He told the crowd that he was washing his hands of the blood of this innocent man. So he washes his hands as if to say, this is not on me. And then he allows them to crucify Jesus. This leads to another point. Don't let the crowd do your thinking for you. Don't let the crowd do your thinking for you. To me, this is the main point of the lesson, really. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, but he allowed the pressure of the crowd to manipulate him. And he appeased the crowd by sacrificing the life of an innocent man so that he could secure favor with the crowd and his political power and position. Everything that Pilate was doing ultimately came down to what he thought was best for him. And there's a tragic irony in this whole story. You see, the Jews, who are represented by the religious leaders, who are supposed to be God's people, are the ones vying to have him crucified. They're the ones that want to have him killed. Pilate, who represents Rome, the oppressors, is the only one in the story who is doing everything in his power to try and keep Jesus alive. He's advocating on his behalf. Caiaphas, the high priest, and Pilate at some level viewed themselves as free agents. 
doing what they felt they needed to do to uphold whatever was best for them. And they were seeing Jesus as a pawn in all of this, moving things around for their own gain. And yet we know better. We know better. If we look at the story as a whole, we know that nothing happened outside of God's plan. God was actually orchestrating the entire event. And Caiaphas and the religious leaders and Pilate didn't even realize it. And that leads to another point. God works all things together for good. Do you see how God was ultimately in charge of this situation? In Romans 28 it says, And we know that all things... In all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. All things. Isn't that an amazing story? Now, here's the thing. While today's message may read like a story of playing politics or the depravity of man, we need to remember that this is God's story. God orchestrated this story. He planned the details. And he did it not because he was hoping to orchestrate a really cool story, but because of his extravagant love for you and me. He was putting some things in place that would guarantee an opportunity for us to be rid of sin and death in our lives. He was putting everything in place. And if you come on Friday, right here at 7 o'clock, we're going to pick up this story right where it left off. And you're going to be able to hear how Jesus, Jesus navigates the next part of God's divine plan. Then on Sunday, you will hear the culmination of everything that God has planned. It's a glorious, celebratory climax to a story that looked very dire at the beginning and turns out to be absolutely majestic. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for caring so much to play such an intricate intricate role in our lives, Lord. I love how you give us free will to to move about and to do the things that we think we need to do. And, And yet you are weaving your plan throughout our lives and throughout our circumstances. Because you work all things for good for those who are called according to your purpose. Lord, your love is so profound. Thank you, Lord, for this story. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for giving him the courage to walk out his calling with the obedience. Oh, Lord, help us to do the same in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.